Turn with me, please, to John chapter 14, page 1082. I, I really will be spending all of our time this evening in that passage and working in it and through it, so please do have it open in front of you. Let's pray. Father God, as we've sung that old hymn, we've already invited your Spirit to come and to be with us. Lord, we pray now for a particular work of the Spirit and that He would come and teach us, that He would take the Word that He inspired in the ancient writer, that He would take this Word and make it brand new and fresh and energetic for us, that the Spirit would apply Your Word to our hearts and our lives and that we would be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening we're dealing with a third sermon in a series from John chapter 13 right through to 17. The setting, if you remember, is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. Those whole five chapters deal with the events and the conversation of that evening. On this, unique on this unique evening, Jesus takes the opportunity, first of all, to demonstrate a new thing to his disciples, to give them a new example. So he washes their feet, something unheard of for a master to do. He washes their feet and he says, do the same for each other. Not only does he give them a new example, he gives them a new command. He says, love one another and do it in the way that I've loved you. That, that's the, the crux of what's going on in chapter 13. Two weeks ago in chapter 14, we noticed that Jesus starts to talk to his disciples about him going away, but he reassures them. He assures them that they need not be troubled because he is going to prepare a place for them with the Father in heaven. That's the purpose of what lies ahead in these next days. This death on the cross, his resurrection, all has the purpose of preparing a way for them to the Father. As we come now this evening to the second half of chapter 14, I have to say I'm relieved because it gives me an opportunity to talk about something that I've been a wee bit nervous about. One of the big themes of my preaching in the two and a bit years that I've been at Kirkpatrick Memorial is the call to discipleship. It's been a big theme in my preaching because I think it's at the very heart of what the New Testament calls us to. Time and time again, and in a variety of ways, I've held up before you Jesus' call to each one of us to follow him. Discipleship, following Jesus that is what this Christian life is all about. But I'm conscious now with hindsight that after repeatedly holding this invitation of Jesus up before you, there, there remains maybe an unanswered question. The more times I say, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, follow Jesus, the more times 
and maybe the more pointedly we, we have a new question arising, how? How do we follow Jesus? You see, it's different for us than it is for the twelve. Most of the material that we have to think about and to, to ruminate over is Jesus, the incarnate Christ, walking with his twelve chosen disciples. They had, they had the opportunity to learn from Jesus as he healed the sick, as he shows grace to the sinner, as he confronts the corrupt. But we don't have that privilege. They had the privilege of hearing Jesus preach firsthand. As soon as he said amen at the end of the sermon, they were able to, to go over and to ask him, Lord, what did that mean? But we don't have that privilege. It's one thing for the disciples of Jesus whom we meet in the Gospels to follow him in that context. But it's quite another thing for us to follow Jesus now. So I suppose the question firms up into something like this. How do we follow the risen, returned to heaven Jesus? How is it possible to be a disciple of Jesus after he's returned to heaven and before he returns from glory. How do you follow Jesus when he's not around? That's the question that'll be answered for us as we look at Jesus' teaching here in the second half of John 14. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus promises his disciples, I'll ask the Father and he'll send you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Friends, what Jesus is promising here is nothing less than the full presence of God. We need to be clear about that. The promise of the Spirit isn't a watered-down presence of God. It's not one-third of the Godhead that's on offer to us here. Jesus is promising the full presence of God, that it's going to come on those who love Him and follow Him. In verse 16, at first glance, it looks maybe as if he is talking only about the Spirit. But look now at verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus is promising that he personally is going to be present with his disciples by means of the Spirit. Look now at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home, our home in him. This time it's the Father and the Son who will make their home in, the, in the, the disciple of Jesus, and they'll do so by means of the Spirit. Let, let's stop for a second here and think about that. Isn't that absolutely breathtaking? By the Spirit, God the Father and the Son make themselves at home in me, in you, if you're a follower of Jesus. The glory of the Trinity in you, in me. I'm not sure if we believe that. I think one of our problems is maybe 
is maybe on the level of understanding. One is that it just seems too, too good to be true. God in me, in you. Friends, it is true. It's what Jesus tells us in this chapter. Another thing that Jesus teaches here is that in many ways the Spirit serves as a substitute for him in his absence. Look at verse 16. Jesus promises that the Father is going to send the disciples another counselor. Now, in the Greek, there are two words for another. The first word means a different thing, not like the first. But there's a second word that means an additional thing, like the first. It's the second of those Greek words that used here in this passage. The Holy Spirit isn't a different counselor, but he's one who's essentially the same as Jesus. When the Spirit is with you, you have Jesus. It becomes clearer as Jesus tells us a little bit about the Holy Spirit's job description. In chapter 16 and verse 13, he promises that the Spirit is going to guide the believers into all truth. Isn't that what Jesus has been doing all along? He's been teaching them, guiding them into truth. In chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus promises that the Spirit is going to testify about Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus has been doing for himself. In chapter 8, he says this, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I'm coming from and where I'm going. In chapter 16 and verse 8, Jesus promises that the Spirit is going to convict the world of sin. That's what Jesus has been doing. In chapter 15 and verse 22, he does just that. Jesus, in our passage this evening, calls the Spirit the Spirit of truth. And what did Jesus say in the passage we looked at two weeks ago? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, these are incredible truths that we're work learning here so far this evening. The Holy Spirit brings the full presence of the triune God to those who follow Jesus. Now we've noticed that the Spirit acts as a substitute in many ways in His work, continuing the work of Jesus. We began by asking the question, how do you follow Jesus whenever He's not around? And, and the answer is very clearly coming to the surface here. When we're disciples of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus and His Father are in us. And that Spirit is going to continue the same teaching, training, discipling ministry that Jesus had with His own disciples 2,000 years ago. Friends, I want to come out of the passage for a moment and, and, and think about this. We don't always get this very clearly in the church, do we? From my own observations in the church, I can see at least two 
significant failures to walk in step with the Spirit as Jesus presents them to us here. On the one hand, we have those who, who ignore the Spirit. If not in their theology, then in their practice. During the week, I heard Anne Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter, speaking at a conference. And she, she described in a very graphic way what it's like to live the Christian life ignoring the empowering presence of God's Spirit. She talked about it being like a man with a chainsaw trying to cut a tree down. The man's working away with the saw, trying to cut the tree down, and he's getting nowhere. And three or four hours into his job, his friend comes around and asks him, you know, why is this so slow? Why is this taking you so long? And the guy shows him, you know, this chainsaw just isn't doing anything. And his friend says, show it to me. And he takes the chainsaw from him, pulls the, uh, what, what's that called? I don't know what that's called. Pulls the, the, and the chainsaw comes to life. The power comes into it. And the tree's down before you know it. Friends, we, we have churches full. We have many of our lives full of this experience. We, we, we try to live the life of Christ without the empowering presence of the living Christ in us. Friends, there is a problem there. We ignore the Spirit on the one hand. While some ignore the Spirit, there's a a new move afoot, and that's to make the Spirit a novelty. Frankly, a lot of what we see nowadays and what we hear about the spirits, it's silly. We hear of people going, you know, laughing like mad, barking like dogs. When I was in Canada, the big question that was going around was, is the Spirit turning people's fillings to gold? That was the big question coming through on the tail end of, of the first wave of the Toronto blessing. Whenever we start to talk like this, and whenever this becomes the focus of our understanding of the Spirit, we have forgotten that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and of the Son. Somewhere along the line, we have forgotten that to be filled with the Spirit is to become like Jesus. Friends, laughing like mad, barking like a dog, having your fillings turned to gold, none of that, to me, seems particularly compatible with the Spirit-filled life that I see Jesus Christ live, the life of God revealed in the Gospels. Friends, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God can't do that if he chooses to. But that's not what we look for. And I don't believe that that's God's best for us under any circumstances. Friends, let's, let's learn from these failings and let's pray that in our individual lives and, and here in a church, as a church, we will be open to the Spirit but we'll do so in, in ways that give glory to Jesus. Let's revere the Spirit. Let's love Him. Let's worship Him.
This, this indwelling of the Almighty God isn't going to be for everyone. Jesus tells us so in verse 17. He talks about the Spirit, and He says, the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. Jesus is very clear about this. Some people have the Spirit, and some people don't. I want to spend the rest of our time, just a couple more minutes, thinking about this and asking in particular the question, who can receive the Spirit of God as we have thought about Him here this evening? Jesus answers this question not once, not twice, not three, but I think it's four times in this short passage. In the opening couple of verses, He says, if you love Me, you'll obey what I command and I'll ask the Father, and He'll give you another counselor to be with you forever. Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Look down at verses 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Friends, the person who will be filled with the presence of the Spirit of God is the person who loves Jesus. And Jesus tells us here that the person who loves him obeys his teaching. This is the person to whom the Spirit's given. The person who doesn't love Jesus doesn't obey his teaching, and the Spirit can't be given to such a person. Friends, we can't just let this hang here. This is far, far too important not to dwell on for a moment just now. We've got to take Jesus' repeated teaching here seriously. I think we need to hold this up as a plumb line and use it to assess our own individual lives and our experience of church life. We need to ask ourselves what seems like a simple question. What does it mean to love Jesus? For many people, the best way to love Jesus is to pursue theological purity we demonstrate our love for Jesus by adhering to a strict set of beliefs, by refusing to budge come what may, and by shunning others who don't believe exactly what we believe. They clearly don't love Jesus, not as much or as well as we do. Traditionally, there's been a lot of that kind of Jesus love here in our Ulster evangelicalism. For others, to love Jesus means to pursue transcendent experiences. So we demonstrate our love for Jesus by going along to worship events and conferences. The larger the crowd, the louder the music, the higher the hands in praise, the more the love for Jesus. People who don't worship in this way clearly don't love Jesus, at least not as well as we do. 
That's a pretty new kind of Jesus love that's arising on our local church scene. When it comes to working out what it means to love Jesus, it seems to me best to let Jesus define what that love should be. If it's not by pursuing theological purity or transcendent experiences, what does it mean to love Jesus? Well, Jesus tells us, to love me is to obey my commands. Now, it seems to me that even that isn't simple and straightforward. What does Jesus mean when he talks about obeying his commands? Well, let me tell you what I don't think he means. I don't think Jesus is inviting us to become legalistic rule watchers as though there's some moral test that he set us that if we're good enough at obeying rules, we'll hit the pass mark and he'll say, yes, you qualify. You're someone who loves me. If you read Jesus dealing with people in the Gospels, there's no sense of that at all. There's no sense of of Jesus laying heavy legalistic requirements on his disciples. So what does he mean? It seems to me that Jesus is saying something like this to his disciples. Remember, he's talking now in a room to 12 men. I think he's saying this. You men know me. You've been with me now full time for three years. You've seen what I do. You've heard what I say. Now, if you really love me, you'll be convinced by this life that I've lived before you, this life that I've demonstrated to you, and this life that I've called you to you'll be convinced that this life is quite simply the best and the only true life that there is. If you love me, you'll do the things that I've taught you. You'll obey my commands. Why is it that there are so many people who claim to follow Jesus and so few who seem committed to doing the things that Jesus did and living the life that he lived among us. By Jesus' assessment, it's because they don't love him. If you love me, you'll do the things that I command Friends, it seems to me that there are people who want Jesus' forgiveness, but they're not sold out on the kind of person that Jesus was. There are people who want eternal life, but they're not convinced about this life that Jesus lived among us. They're what Dallas Willard shockingly refers to as vampire Christians. They want the blood of Jesus, but they want nothing to do with the person.
Friends, let me close for this evening. In a world of of so much confusion, it's refreshing to spend time with Jesus. We'll call this series Jesus and His Friends. Jesus speaking to those who love Him and who follow Him. As we listen to Jesus, we regain lost perspectives on what it means to be His disciples. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. I'll ask the Father, and He'll send another counselor, one like me, to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. Friends, we began this evening asking the question, how do you follow the risen and ascended Jesus? And we have the answer here in a nutshell. We love him. And when we really love Jesus, we give our lives to living the life that he lived among us. And when we do that, it pleases God. It pleases him to pour his spirit, more and more of his spirit into our life. It pleases God to come in his fullness. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to live in me and in you. Have you ever heard the like of it? God in me and in you. Friends, I I don't know what else we're waiting for. It doesn't get any better than this. God in us. Let's pray.